0: Good evening, you are listening to Three Moves Ahead, and I'm your host, Rob Zachney. With me today are two of my regular panel, first, 3MA founder and Evolve PR maven, Troy Goodfellow. Troy, welcome to the show.
1: I'm a PR maven now. And a strategy God, I, maven. I barely I, have any clue what I'm doing half the time. Next week's going to be absolutely killer. But yes, I'm happy to be here.
0: Your your press releases have gotten really good, Troy. Like, noticeably better. Yeah, <sighs> I'm, 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 I'm opening them now. I'll oh, <laughs> screw you. and i'm also joined uh by freelance writer uh julian rabbit murdoch julian welcome to the show
2: oh i i I seem to have most of my voice back too so
0: yeah that's fantastic you are you you are now one of the few rabbit con survivors who can speak normally yes and we're also joined uh by gas powered games head and designer of total annihilation supreme commander dungeon siege chris taylor thank you you know, at the moment, it's a, a bit of a challenging time for gas-powered games and you have a uh, Kickstarter ongoing for uh, a, a new game and sort of RTS MOBA combination uh, that is currently, you know, that's called Wild Man. Uh, and so it also seemed just like a good time to finally do a topic that, you know, I've long wanted to do for this show, uh, which is, you know, talk about your career as a strategy designer. Uh, when I think back on you know my past with the art with you know the RTS genre, you know it's it, it's kind of weird when I, when I look back on it I, I I tend to sort of define it by contributions from you know studios like uh, you know in the early days Westwood and Blizzard and then Blizzard and Relic, but you know when I really reflect on what I've probably spent you know a ton of time playing and enjoying consistently uh, you know for like fifteen years now, um, you know. Your games are actually, I think, secretly my favorite RTSs. Uh, if I'm, you know, if I'm being completely honest, uh, so I kind of wanted to, you know, talk about, you know, the the Chris Taylor RTS. Uh, you know, now that you know we've got a chance to capture you here.
3: Well, you know, uh, I'm in a mood this last while. Uh, I've kind of been do- I'm kind of doing this tell all thing. Um, You know, there's books written like, uh, you'll never eat lunch in this town again. Mm -hmm. I kind of feel like um, I'm going to be eating lunch someplace else (laughs) uh, after what's happened. Um, Regardless, uh, you know, I'm I'm trying to be discreet about it, but you can probably ask me anything. And I'm just going to give you the straight answer because that's, you know, whether it really works or not. Um, to tell the truth um i'm actually I'm bought off on that theory until you find me in a dumpster somewhere. consider that my uh, my uh, you know my standard operating procedure.
0: <laughs> well, if you turn up in a dumpster somewhere, I'm sure there's gonna be a long list of publisher executives that uh, we that we need to question. <laughs> 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 well, and you know what's funny. Um, they, they they probably aren't even
3: paying attention to this uh, at all. What I'm what I've been uh, what I've been doing. I don't think they care. I think publishing executives right now have their hands full of trying to figure out if the console is going to actually be the business uh, f- for them. You know, the business they'll be in over the next five years. I think PC gaming and the PC in general is just Uh, kicking ass everywhere and they don't know it yet they just don't want to accept the fact that that thing called a pc is the future of gaming and uh if that upsets them and they have me uh stuffed into a dumpster well then i guess uh i guess that's that but uh i think they're busy right now
0: well uh that's music to our ears uh certainly we're we're big pc boosters here and uh, certainly I, I think, you know, some of, some of your games, uh, you know, particularly I think Total Annihilation was kind of a revelation for me back in, oh God, when did oh, it come yeah. out? Like mm-hmm. 1994? 94? Yeah, 94 is too early. Yeah, 97?
2: I'm, I'm sure somebody on this podcast knows.
0: Everyone with the internet will know, but.
3: All right. But. Oh, oh I, oh, I'm sorry, guys. I was, um, I was actually waiting to see if you knew. <laughs> <laughs>
2: 97, I'm
1: pretty sure.
3: It was September the fourth fourth 19 1997 because it was my birthday when the game released
0: <laughs> <laughs> that's great uh when that came out that was sort of a a you know sit up and take notice moment for me because you know prior to that you know my experience with the rts genre had been primarily like command and conquer uh you know the warcraft series and you know, you you know, total annihilation was something completely different, something much bigger, much more impressive, and I kind of just wanted to talk to you about sort of the origins of total annihilation, and really, you know, and you know, feel free to disagree with you know, correct me on this, uh, Troy and Julian, but for me, I hadn't seen an RTS operate like this and do things like this before. It really seemed uh, something you know that was a really new new direction for the genre. Oh,
1: well, I mean the mid-90s, you're seeing a lot of things already starting get getting set in stone in the RTS genre. You already have certain clichés pretty much in place. Uh, but there's still a lot of, you know, innovation happening on the margins and the borders. And Total Annihilation comes out and it is... First, it's so much goddamn bigger uh, than anything else. It has themes that aren't being addressed. Uh, and... A lot of other RTSs, and it has an economic system that has not been captured, copied, imitated for a number of reasons, uh, both good and bad, I think. Uh, but it is, it is, and remains um, total annihilation and subcomp, because completely fresh and original models. So it was, it was not a game that I got really deep into. I think partly because it was just, in many ways, so alien uh, to a lot of the RTS experience I've been having.
2: Well, and and it still to me seems like a a, a split we have in RTS games mm-hmm. of the micro versus the macro, yeah. right? I mean, and back in the '90s, it was the difference between playing, you know, Warcraft and Warcraft Two, and it's you know heavy focus on micromanagement or. Um, to some extent, I, I mean age of Empires, I think came out right about the same time, another game that really sort of slows down and focuses on the micromanagement elements of an RTS. And then we've we've had you know Chris, sort of the body of your work, which has really pulled the camera back both literally and figuratively. Uh, and focused on, you know, huge battles with large numbers of units and and an economy that really matters more than just trying to make sure you've got enough of, you know, resource A and resource B to get unit C, uh, you know. And, and I, I'm surprised, actually, that we haven't seen more pickup on that that style of game. I mean, probably the closest thing. Um, in the sort of current genre, might be something like Sins of a Solar Empire, which at least gives you that feeling of having a lot of things going on at once and really having to to sort of zoom in and out, again, literally and figuratively, your attention uh, onto on the battlefield.
1: I mean, to set the context for listeners, I mean, we have yeah, Age of Empires comes out in 97 and you have Starcraft coming out in 98 and you have Total Annihilation uh, right there in between them uh, in late 97. So you have this really... You have three very, many ways, very different uh, RTSs, but the clones that take over the RTS genre through the early 2000s, they've followed the Age of Empires StarCraft model, and Total of Annihilation. The De- great right, Julian has this huge, macro, large... I mean, you could survive in StarCraft and Age of Empires by just building like, a single barracks, and actually do pre- pretty well. If you were to do it in Total Annihilation, you'd be completely hosed. Because it really is about building this huge war machine, Um, And if you lose track of that, you are completely hosed.
3: Wow, you guys have a really good handle on the history of this. I'm I'm just enjoying sitting back and listening to you (laughs) talk about this because, honestly, I don't think I've even... This is kind of what we do. Well, I guess it is, really. (laughs) Well, do you want to try to... I'll try to do this. I'm very verbose, but I'll try to give you guys a a little bit of an idea how I arrived at Total Annihilation.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. That
2: would be great.
3: So when I when I was 14, I got my TRS-80, and I pulled it out of the box, and I started typing in basic programs. And basic programs that did these really really trivial things were were really disappointing. But when I when I ordered mail when I mail ordered uh, uh, this co- game called the Flight Simulator One from Sublogic, and it was in 3D, and it was absolutely horrifyingly crude in every way these lines these graphics were so the so chunky and awful and the frame rate was i think maybe 10 frames a second at best um i was in love okay so magical can can you imagine something that someone would walk into the room and see me trying to fly an airplane and and being just mesmerized by what's on the screen and, and thinking that 3d was everything it was the end-all, be-all of being on a computer. And computers just weren't doing hardly anything in 3D. Now, the, the thing is, is that I devoted myself to it. I, I sucked at math in school. Uh, doing something called a transformation matrix was just the thing of... It, you might as well have tried to explain the theory of relativity to me at that point. So 3D was well beyond my grasp. But I put everything I had into it to try to learn what it was. And for seven years, I I programmed in Z Z. Well, you guys call it Z eighty. I'm born in Canada, so I called it Z eighty assembly language. Because if you wanted to make anything on any computer go respectively respectfully fast, you would hand code it. Now you had to hand optimize. And you had to learn the microprocessor to know how to get the maximum amount of throughput with the least number of instructions. So all of these things were interrelated in those early days, and I got a job professionally then working at Distinctive Software. Now I apologize if this sounds like a ramble, but the first game I was put onto was Hardball 2. Now, Hardball 1 was done by Bob Whitehead at Accolade, and I was doing a sequel up there at Distinctive who was working closely with Accolade. This was the Test Drive days, the Test Drive 2, these wonderful games uh, uh, that were, that were uh, the you know, the beginning of the era of PC gaming, really, and um, of commercialized, I should say commercialized PC gaming. PC gaming had been going on all the way back to the mid-'70s, and this was 1987, 88, 1988. But uh, the first thing I did when I sat down with Hardball Two is I said, you know what? We need to we need to really f- make the three D shine so that the ball physics really work. And, and Kevin Pekel had done a great job of laying some of the groundwork for that in what he what we called a sorry what he called a reverse projection. It's where you take a two dimensional image that's on the screen and you compute what its three dimensional a structure would look like, and then you take the ball when the ball is fired out off the bat into the field, it bounces correctly in a two in, in a two D image. I mean, this is like, this is this is like, I mean, I don't want to call it rocket science, but to a twenty one year old kid, this is the stuff. This is what makes the game come alive. This is what makes the ball roll and feel right on the right turf. Okay, so Hardball Two was really a three D game. That you saw in a 2D uh, context does that does that make sense?
2: Yeah, which is which is ironically kind of what Total Annihilation was too, right because you you had height, but the actual thing you were looking at was rendered flat, right I mean am I correct in remembering
3: that? You're right on the money. So here's the deal. So when I sat down to do what I called the really cool war game, that's what it was called. I said, if I try to render this game in real-time 3D, try to lay down the terrain. And by the way, there was a game that I saw at a trade show like a year earlier that tried to do it, and they had no frame rate. Even on the high-end box that they were showing at the trade show, it had no frame rate. And I thought, you poor buggers. You you just, you'll never get there. You've got to lay down the bulk of the pixels on the screen must be in 2D. Because the way the structure of the, the processor and the memory works Um, if you lay it down in 2D, you're only hitting every pixel once with the processor. And so what I did is I built a tool that allowed me to pull the train up and pull the train down in a thing. This was in late 95 when I was between jobs, literally between when I left Electronic Arts Canada and I was going to head down and join Ron Gilbert at Humongous. And then what I did was I cached this three-dimensional mesh into a bitmap and and then was able to drive a vehicle over it. So then Clayton the artist uh, the, the who's brilliant and of course who came onto the project he was just Clayton the artist but now of course he's he's renowned for all of his great creative work that he's done death spank and uh, and uh, other games and uh, so he um, Voodoo Vince he, he he had this idea that we should use Bryce to render these two-dimensional terrains off this three-dimensional data in order to create this sort of realistically almost look like it was rendered. Because it was. I mean, it was rendered terrain. It wasn't hand-drawn or painted. And then we took this two-dimensional rendering of a three-dimensional data set, and then we put these three, real-time three-dimensional units onto that terrain, and it was like magic. It was like breathing life into Pinocchio. You know, all of a sudden, we had this gorgeous fluid three-dimensional game and we cheated the cp you know we cheated on the cpu to make it everybody believe they're playing a fully rendered 3D game and damn it that was fabulous it was a moment in time it was it was a beautiful thing
0: right i i think i actually bought a whole like i think i was unaware then the degree to which i was sort of like being deceived a little bit, right? Because like when I sat down and played it today, my memory of, of Total Annihilation, I, I hadn't played it uh, until the last couple of days, You know, for a number of years, actually. Um, but my memory of it was, okay, you always remember games a little better looking than they actually were. But I remembered it being a 3D game. Right? Like, in my, in my memory, everything had, like, depth, and, like, the units were, like, fully 3D, and the train like, was... And, of course, it absolutely, it, it absolutely isn't. But the, the illusion was created so successfully uh, that I remember I'd get into huge arguments, uh, even at the time, about, um, you know, what, what was the best RTS, and what I would, like, you know, my, what I made my hill to die on was the fact that, like, no, man, like, all these other RTSs are, like, you know, baby stuff. You might as well be playing on a table. But Total Annihilation has hills and shit. And like that was that was it. Like that's I was like, no, we're done here. It's like it's like a war game with robots. Over.
3: <laughs> you know, um, that's just this is too much fun now. You know that, right? I mean I don't get to do this all the time, but boy, this is this is good times, Rob. And by the way, you were deceived. Sorry
0: well it was it it was very clever trickery but but you know like but the other thing is going back to like the rate based economy and sort of you know building a huge war machine, I mean a lot of these other i guess the only the, the only other game that seemed to be going big, I'd say like Troy would be like age of empires but like but
1: I mean, even age of empires really didn't i mean they had the first one had a had a hard cap of fifty units. Fifty hard cap of fifty yeah. units, and half of those would be peasants. I and mean, you'd be building like 20, yeah. 15, 20 peasants to keep your economy going. Age of Empires two, it got a little bit bigger, and you could raise the cap a little bit. You really didn't have, I guess you would say, armies that looked large um, until, like even like Rise of, I mean Rise of Nations would, but it kind of cheated because each unit each single unit would have, like, three or four subunits within it. So it looked like you have this huge army, though, in fact, you really didn't. Total Annihilation actually had you build hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of units. So I guess the the closest thing would be Cossacks, I think. And Cossacks comes out, what, in the 2000s, I think? And that's a game that had, like, really large-scale pike-and-musket armies. I I, I think Dark
0: Reign got pretty big, too.
1: Dark Reign's another good example, yeah. But I mean, but really Total Annihilation is not just the first one, but it's the first one that, I mean, there was there was really no way, you, you could, I mean, see, the AI wasn't always necessarily sharp, uh, so you could, you know, be just more efficient. Uh, but in most of the time, especially in multiplayer, you were going to be building large armies. There was no way around it. Um, and the economy, just this whole deficit spending rate thing, um, not only made that, Possible, but it made it very kind of difficult. You had to really be an elite guy to understand what the hell was going on half the time. So I think one of the great tricks of Total Annihilation, besides the 3D stuff, which is an amazing, beautiful computer trick, and we were so many of us were fooled in the day uh, by these
0: little things. Thank you for that, not leaving me out out there on that. Track. Oh no,
1: we we were we were all idiots. Um, but that, that Total Total Annihilation, I think. I mean, strategy gamers. One of our big problems of strategy games is we like to think we're smarter than everyone else. We like to think that, oh, if you play a strategy game, you're some great genius. You're the next Hannibal, whatever. Total Annihilation really made you believe that. I figured this damn thing out. This is a hard game. It's full of science and robots and different tiered units and this really wacky economy. And I'm building this huge army. It almost made it plausible that you actually were a super genius for being a good <laughs> Total Annihilation player. And I think that's one of the secrets why it's so popular. Because even though it was a very successful game, in many ways it was still kind of a niche niche cult it, have, it was a hit but if you could have a really big cult hit total annihilation would be it people who really love total
2: annihilation really really love total annihilation but 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 the irony there is that it's actually not and and i'm thinking a little bit more of supreme commander probably which i'll admit i actually probably put more time into subcom mm. than i did into total annihilation me too um it's not actually that hard a game in the sense that if you plop somebody who's sit down in front of a computer to play it and they start you know working their way through the campaign. It's not like it's overwhelmingly complex. It's not like there are hundreds of unit types
0: and no. And well, 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 hang, of on, no. Oh. hang on, hang oh. on. Not hundreds of unit types, but come on. There are the, there's the, the, a lot, the, but... Yeah, there's multiple different... Like Everything comes out of different buildings, so many different tiers. I don't know. Even that seems like kind of a uh, you know prodigious amount of complexity.
1: And the campaign in Subcom, if you want to go out of Subcom, I mean it was in many ways frightening and required some weird thinking because you'd be playing a mission on this map. Oh, great. I beat that mission. Oh, no, I'm sorry. No, you didn't. The, maps, Wait, the, map, really is, the map is yeah. now <laughs> twice as big and you have to retool your whole goddamn economy because the map's changed. Uh, yes. So, I mean, even that in itself, the Subcom campaign required you to not plan well, ahead. Maybe,
2: but- maybe I'm just reiterating your point yeah. because I'm notoriously stupid when it comes to playing games. This is agreed. And yet... And yet, the Subcom series was, a, you know, one of these games that I felt that I could play competently. And again, you know, it's it's got to just be devious, devilish trickery, right, there, to make, me, are, feel, to make of, me feel like I'm competent. When we get well, yeah. when we
1: get to Subcom, we could talk about just how well it how well it actually topped the game. I think one of Subcom's great improvements was in its teaching. The you know, campaign does teach the game. I do think Total Annihilation did. But yeah, Total Annihilation is. There were a lot of beautiful tricks going on in there.
0: Well, hang on. I'm just going to point out though that the guy who, in his other life, does like business and finance writing, understands economics and such, strangely is curiously good at the rate based economy <laughs> game. And it's like I'm not smart, okay, but I'm, fair I'm enough. good at it. Fair enough. <laughs> uh, but but so but uh, you know, having just recently put a lot of time into like Starcraft, right, and, and everything, like you know, I'm trying to. You get your build orders, and you you know everything's very very rote, and you just get into it, and the pop cap is there. To sort of, um, you know, it, it gates progress, and so everything sort of follows the sort of, uh, e- you know, easy step by step. Here's how you ramp up your economy. I look at Total Annihilation and Supreme Commander, and they just don't operate that way. Like the 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 creating the war machine and getting it, you know, knitting it together is a completely different level of complexity, and I just, or at least it feels that way to me right now. And I, you know, I'm just kind of curious. You know how every other game was doing something very different with the economy and production at the time, Chris, and you sort of came along and just said, "You know screw it let's you know uh you know we'll we'll have this huge rate based economy uh multiple like you know production uh lines mo- running simultaneously, and nobody done this before you know it's not like." To my memory, like I like, usually you can sort of trace the origins of a design back, right? Like, here's who you're going to school on. Here's who you were. You're taking their idea and doing another iteration. With Total Annihilation, you just sort of seem to, you know, you know, break completely from how RTS games were made.
3: Yeah, this is a this is a very um, easy uh, area to forget the details. In because you can't it's it's when I go back I start thinking yeah other games made me save up all my money and then I could only buy it when I had the money and then I go whoa whoa whoa, wait a minute command and conquer you could start building something before you had all the money but then you would run out and it would say uh, i forget what it would say like built pro you know building right, right.
0: yeah the 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 image would fill in i remember that right it would like the yeah. pile so they
3: kind of were doing it and then when you when your harvester came in and dumped um uh its 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 payload you know or its its harvest or whatever <laughs> the Tiberium would dump into the refinery uh, all your buildings would start to click ahead and then you would if you were building too much you know it would get spread out so I have to have to give credit to to Westwood for really be going down that road and, and they and I saw that and I basically you know and and here's a confession right I loved and I've made this confession a hundred times but I'll make it again I loved Westwood and I loved Command and Conquer. I mean, these guys, I, I, you know, they could do no wrong and I would play their games and I would think, okay, um, here's where I would, what I would do if I was designing Command and Conquer, I would make the turrets elevate. I would make, uh, the, I would add real physics, um, on for things I would, you know, I would do this, 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 this. So I had all these things. So when, um, when, um. You know, I started working on Total Annihilation. All I was doing was trying to make my version of Command & Conquer with all the changes that I sort of felt were, you know, that I would do if I was designing it. Um, Among those was the economy, which I felt like I wanted to run like a a real world economy. Like, okay, I'm a builder, and I'm going to build up an apartment building, and the building's going to cost me $5 million dollars. Well, you know, if you're a builder, you don't need $5 million to begin the building project because what you're going to do at some point, if it's a condominium complex, is you're going to start selling suites. That's why they open up those show suites early because they're going to generate money during the construction phase to actually pay for the construction, right? Like it's a, it's a continuous process of bringing dollars in And what you really just need is cash flow. So I didn't really know about accounting and cash flow, but I do know about real life, and that you can start doing something before you have all the money to complete the project. And that was the heart and soul of the total annihilation economy system. And uh, people looked at me and thought I was bananas. I mean, at every level through the process, right? I had to, I had to, sh- I had to spread religion on the economy, and the whole time I'm going, but guys. This is real life. This is how this is how it works. If you buy a house, you don't have the whole payment for the house. You mortgage it from a bank and you make payments over 20 or 30 years and you pay your house off. That's the this is this is the the world we live in. And but what was amazing to me was when the game went out, there was an immediate what the hell is this? Like this is crazy. Don't you why shouldn't you save up all your money and then plunk it down? Like, so many of the other RTSs went to that model. They didn't even stick with the Command & Conquer model. They went to the model of... And I should actually go back and say it was Dune 2. I mean, Dune 2 was what really hooked up. Well,
0: me. yeah. You know. At the same time, like, one reason a lot of people sort of uh, stumble over it, right, is because it does add this... You know, it's, it's different than you, you know, pl- you know, plunking your money down, you know, just one unit, go, and you, you know, buy the thing all at once. I, I find there's this sort of different... Uh, you know, mental process you have to do when you're playing with a rate-based economy, right? Where you're, now it's it's like, you know, you're, you're, you know, you gotta be, it's almost like you're doing air traffic control, right? Like, when is this plane gonna land and this one's gonna take off? Like, with rate-based economy, and and this is where I, where I stumble too, uh, is that, you know, you gotta be thinking about, when's this project gonna wrap up? And that's yeah. no longer gonna be a drain on my resources. Well, but,
2: but the other thing too is i mean troy was talking about that i know i remember the the mission quite explicitly in supreme commander that you're talking about troy where you you think you're wrapping up a mission all of a sudden you know the the entire world opens up and you're like oh my god i've completely done everything wrong by having the rate-based economy you you're allowed to you can make those changes yes right it's it wasn't game over at that no, point point. No. and if you know in another another type of strategy game you might have invested all of your tiberium or magic resource Queue or whatever the hell it is building you know some an enormous uber tank and then you'd be absolutely screwed as soon as you realize that you needed something completely different, right? Because there's generally no way to recoup a unit. Um, and by having this rate-based economy, you can effectively reset your game. And part of the reason I love those Supreme Commander games so much was because a lot of times you would end up in, even if it wasn't as explicit as that one mission, which really did change the game, you could be all the way down one path And realize that you were going in a horribly wrong direction. And it didn't necessarily mean you'd lost that game. It meant that you were going to now effectively start another game midpoint by, you know, scrapping a whole bunch of plans you'd had and redirecting your resources in a new strategy. And sure, maybe that made the game take longer than it would have otherwise. But it gave you an opportunity to learn in real time and improve in that same game, which I find really unique.
0: Yeah, I I definitely, um, I remember quite a few cases in uh, Blizzard games in particular, campaign and multiplayer, you know, you could like easily mine out the map, or uh, and then you're done yeah, yeah yeah it's just like well I got to restart this mission because the whole trick of it was how are you gonna allocate your resources and if you built like one uh, I remember Warcraft 2 one mission where you had to make an amphibious assault you built like two destroyers too many it was game over and so you had to you know I played that like five times so I did the right thing uh, yeah this this does create sort of a, a, a flexibility uh, but I think it also creates uh, sort of a, a learning curve issue and so you know one thing I kind of want to talk about uh, you know to to Troy's point about sort of teaching the player how to play the games uh you know the evolution in this case from total annihilation into supreme commander uh you know you've got to sort of teach people how to play your type of rts because it's not like you can rely on other rts games showing them the ropes
3: yeah you can imagine um the surprise when the game went out to management at both the Among Us side and the GT Interactive side, when the game sold 465,000 copies in the first quarter, everyone was like, my God, this this actually appeals to people? (laughs) Like, (laughs) you know, like people actually figured it out. I remember someone around the office saying, Chris, I don't – and they were in management there. Um, I'm hiding the identity to protect the innocent here. Said, you know, it was like – I don't know what it was. It was a couple of weeks or a month before the game shipped. And they said, I still don't know what – I still don't understand this game. And, uh, it, and, of course, that's one person, right? That's one person's opinion. And when you put it out there in front of you know, a, a zillion people and one person takes it home and then figures it out and then can have the patience to explain the game to their friend. I mean, this is the cornerstone of how PC gaming um, you know, really works. I mean, you can only beat someone over the head with advertisement so much. But when a friend calls you up and says, I cracked this nut, I figured this game out, it's worth it for you to invest your time and mental energy to, to to plow through the fog of what the hell is going on here. And then when you come out the other side, you are going to thank me. Because you're going to have a great time. I mean, that's what friends do. Uh, and that's what people, that's what someone did to me on Minecraft. Um, a good friend said, Chris, play Minecraft. You've seen the screenshots. You, you, you probably feel the way a lot of people feel. It's just, it looks like a retro indie game, right? I mean, not even, I mean, <laughs> retro to what, right? It's just so foreign. But boy, oh boy, Minecraft is one of my all-time favorite games, uh, you know, of ever, and you, you just think, gosh, if it wasn't for that kind of convincing friend uh, uh, system, you know, great games wouldn't be discovered. Uh, but I digress.
1: I mean, it's worth pointing out, I mean, Total Annihilation, I mean, it, in many ways it kind of had an advantage over Subcom, that it came out when still a lot of the RTS rules were, were being figured out and it was okay for a game to break out into new kind of territory. But it was also a time when it was used that really, a few websites and Usenet. I mean, mean, that's the internet. That's where you're going to be learning your games. Or if if you're lucky, you give a magazine subscription. Um, So it's not the... You don't have YouTube playthroughs. You don't have uh, somebody on Skype talking you through a game. Uh, So the entire... How we learned games uh, back... I mean, it sounds like a lifetime ago. I mean, 97, I mean, it was... I was... I was, I, was, I was in graduate school in 97, so it wasn't exactly that long ago. I'm not that old. I was in middle school. Shut up. Uh, uh, babies. But, it was, but, it was, but, but we think with the technological infrastructure now and how we learn games, uh, Total Annihilation, I mean, you were right. It, really, it was at that point where you really had to rely on word of mouth, people walking you through all of this stuff. And yes, it was a time when people were willing to try and learn new things. Supreme Commander comes along. Um, you know, a decade later, and the first supreme commander at least uses, still uses the old total annihilation economic system. But by this time, you have an in- virtually an entrenched economic model in the RTS that is not the total annihilation model. It's you know, it's, it's you, yeah, you have the command and conquer. Oh, you've run out of you've run out of minerals. You've got to wait a bit before you can build this piece of crap in this crappy game. But you you don't have but most RTS are still using you you spend what you got Uh, you can't take out loans you can't say well I'm going to be building if I I can build this because I know I'm building three energy mines while these things are being built so I'll be able to catch up you can't do that um, in most other games so Subcom comes along and you have to train people again how to play a game they liked ten years ago. So how do you go about doing it? How do you go about... And then the sub- subcom, too, just throws that model out altogether. It goes to a more traditional economic model. I really liked Supreme Commander 2 for a number of reasons, more than Supreme Commander 1. But the economy stuff, step back, seemed to a lot of people like a betrayal of you know, what total annihilation was about. So could you talk us through, first of all, Supreme Commander, why you stuck with that model? And how you train people, how you build a tutorial and how you build um, cues, because you have the because interface improved, and you have rollover tooltips, and you have new energy in how to design tutorials. there's a lot of changes in computer design over that 10 years. So going to Supreme Commander One, what are your decisions going into that, remaking Total Annihilation?
3: Yeah, So obviously we, we didn't have the IP. IP is right. intellectual property, and uh, that was owned by GT, which ended up, uh, you know, going up through all these acquisitions and companies. And we, we knew that, uh, you know, and I, I will say this: uh, uh, this is a little bit of the business side. But I tried to acquire Total Annihilation, again and again and again. I could not, um, I could not pry it out of uh, of the company a of, of du jour that happened to be rolling up into the next company. Um, it was uh, who holds it now. Uh, it's Atari. I think it's Atari France. I think Atari, I think when, when, um, this is all just armchair, like I have no, I have, I haven't fact checked at all, but Infogrames, um, bought GT interactive and I believe they bought Atari assets and they renamed Atari, but they did some crazy thing where they split Atari into Atari U S and Atari back in France. Um, which was effectively Infogram's uh, home turf. And then what happened was is they transferred uh, a whole bunch of IP up into the parent company, and then I think right now Atari in the U.S. is going through a Chapter 11, and I don't know whether Atari U.S. actually has the Total Annihilation IP or if it's back in France. So, I mean, (laughs) you know, where's – you know, I mean, so, so, so it suffice to say I could not acquire it. Um, I made multiple offers. I, I offered money that I went and raised, um, because everyone believed that if I could do a sequel, it would do well. And it was worth the investment. And then when I went and approached them, the conversation was consistently, um, they wanted more than what they, they told me they would, they wanted. So they kept raising the price. It's some sort of weird game, uh, that I, I don't appreciate playing because, of course, I can't win at it. Um, uh, no matter what, what, I, what I did, I, I couldn't get enough money, but I tried and tried. And, of course, I'd get emails from people all over the world, why don't you make Total Annihilation too? And I'd be like, for the love of God, I'm trying. I really am. But anyways, so Soupcom. Supreme commander was the spiritual successor. And I mean, we didn't want to blatantly rip it all, rip total annihilation off. I'm really, I really don't like lawyers and courtrooms. So my attitude was, um, you know, and I've never been in one. And that's probably why I, I really respect people's uh, properties. Even if I designed it, I was an employee and I wanted to respect that. So Supreme commander was a, a new beginning for, for, for what would become something that we would own and we would build on now. I thought the name Supreme Commander was the perfect name. I've probably never come up with a name so ideal. Now, why is that? It's because the a Supreme Commander is the top dog in any theater of war. Whether that's um, Eisenhower in in Europe, uh, Hitler was the Supreme Commander of uh, of the Nazis. When these guys are are strategists. They're not tacticians, right? A tactician is down at the lieutenant colonel level. They, these guys are managing and, and thinking about how they're going to go into the into what, what they're doing in a battle. Um, the, uh, uh, supply lines and stuff like that. Uh, ha- all of this stuff has to be worked out at a strategic level. And so, of course, I believed always that if it's a real-time strategy game, Um, that it had to, you had to have a component of the game that, that happened in your head before you engaged your enemy. The, the Normandy invasion, right? The, the famous D day, this was strategy at its finest. It's not just, let's just go attack the enemy. It's plan, 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 figure it all out, get the right weather, launch the plan. Once the guys are on the beach and they're going up the beach and they're shooting at each other, uh, Uh, taking each foot. This is tactics. This is all tactical. And the thing is, is that most RTS games were real-time tactical. So I was you know loving the idea that i could bring strategy to it and then supreme commander was my chance to really do it so that's where the that's where the strategic zoom came in we even called it strategic zoom because when you zoom all the way out you are not in a tactical frame of mind you are in a strategic frame of mind you're looking at armies moving on the map that may not get there for 2 or 3 minutes this is this is this is this is where strategy to me really shone and the whole supreme commander concept And everything came together. We had more computer power. The terrain could be rendered in real time. And and really, it was uh, a a great thing. But you know what? The game sold a million copies, which was was back – I mean, people would kill today to sell a million copies, which I find highly ironic um, given that uh, people spit on a million copy sales back
0: then. Oh, so you feel – oh, that's interesting because I actually sort of think that – that a million by today's standards, they've also most publishers have also sort of moved beyond that. Uh, you feel there's been sort of a a sort of change in what are the benchmarks for success? Once again, that things are maybe back to a more realistic uh, take.
3: Yeah, I mean that's a that's a whole that's a whole era. I could talk to you about. Um, the, the, the truth is, is there was a time at a given publisher that I was at where they said if they cannot initiate a new product line or franchise as as the buzzword of the day um, and get 5 million copies sold, they weren't interested. I mean, that's... Oh, that's that was that was because, you know, they have they, they their attitude was, well, they only have so many resources and right. if they're going to allocate resources and then a marketing team and a PR team and the blah, 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 that the, why would they go and take that team and work on a game that's going to sell a million copies when that same team could work on a five million
0: selling game? And, and certainly, I mean, your publisher for Supreme Commander, and I don't know, maybe that's who you were obliquely referring to. I don't know. But certainly THQ was, was a publisher that uh, sort of got into a good position by, you know, exploiting smaller markets and you know, not sort of turning up its nose at the million seller. Uh, And then, you know, for several years, there was really, you know, swinging for the fences uh, on every pitch. Uh, And, you know, obviously, we've, you know, in the last few days, we've seen the fallout from that.
3: Well, I got to tell you right now that that wasn't THQ. THQ was fabulous to me. I don't know that everyone can tell that story who's worked with them. But I absolutely love those guys. They went they, they, Everybody, and it wasn't just THQ down in uh, Agora or Calabasas. Uh, it was the guys over in Europe who did a fantastic job. The PR was outstanding. Um, but the point that I was trying to make was that the game, for all of the things that were done right, only sold a million, which was probably just a little bit more than Total Annihilation ended up selling uh, many years before. So you can see that the hardcoreness, and this is going to explain the the very, very difficult question that you guys asked me about the economy changes in SC2. Because for all of the hard work that was done, for all of the... the 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 team's effort to really create a game that tries to do everything right in Supcom, the size and scale, the unit diversity, going from two factions to three factions, maintaining that that, that connection with Total Annihilation so we had momentum and energy coming right out of the gate, we still only sold a million copies compared to Command & Conquer, 5 million to 10 million, Age of Empires, uh, tens of millions. Right. Um the Starcraft twenties of millions, we were still a pimple on the ass of the RTS uh, uh, world, you know, and so in Supreme Commander Two, we had to, we had to ask ourselves a very, very serious question, which is, guys, can we stretch and get into a bigger market and get into allow more people access to the game, allow people to jump in and not have their ass handed to them, not by their enemy? But by the economic system, okay. <laughs> Think about that for a second. People were being defeated by the complexity of the game, and we had to do something. We couldn't just make one game after another because costs of development were rising to the point where the spreadsheets would show you that if you didn't do this, if you didn't make a bold move, it's like a, it's like a passing move on right. a track. You're done. And you know what? At the end of the day, I think the jury is in that we made a mistake. But the truth is, it was a mistake done in, with the intention of entertaining and 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 bringing more people into uh, into the into the into the game, not alienating. People. I think
0: that's I think that's an interesting. You you call it a mistake because now you know. Troy, I know that you actually are, are sort of a, a big booster of Supreme Commander two. Now, yeah. I will admit myself, I came to Supreme Commander two, got into that, but then someone came back back at me and was like, "No, man, you got to play Forge." You know, it's sort of like someone like sort of opens up their coat, right? Like you got to play Forged Alliance, man. That's the yeah. real shit. Yeah. And uh, like honestly, after I played Forged Alliance, I will admit I've sort of gone to that uh, instead of Supreme Commander two. I enjoyed both, but. I'm interested in this sort of difference that you know Troy. Troy, I remember even at the time you were saying this is people are going to underappreciate how much good new stuff this does. I also know that there are people who just didn't find what they wanted in Supreme Commander two that they loved.
2: That that's me. I Supreme Commander two just didn't work for me. I mean, I I sort of cracked the code for Supreme Commander and when supreme commander 2 came out it's just for whatever reason the things that that really got me going in supreme commander just weren't there and actually what it after i got supreme commander 2 what it made me do is go back and play more supreme commander in the expansion <laughs>
0: <laughs> what now what was it that it that it was lacking for you because the one thing i remember about supreme commander 2 in particular is that subcom 2 seemed to front load the goodies right it was like bam you had experimentals from you know within a few minutes like all the awesome crazy shit was happening right from the start but that didn't click with you
2: yeah it, it didn't and uh, you know the uh, the the when I played it, and I will admit, I know some stuff got patched out later, but you know, I played really a ton of it right at release, and um, I missed the economy working the way that I had gotten good at managing the economy, um, the addition of, of research into the system. Um, I, it, never, it never felt organic to me. It felt to me, and I know I'm, I'm an outlier in this because I know some people just totally dug the research system. Um, it felt kind of bolted on, like it kind of got in the way of the stuff that I wanted to do as opposed to putting me in the position of making interesting decisions. I didn't find those decisions interesting and fun. I found them annoying and getting in the way of what I wanted to do.
1: Yeah, I really liked Subcom too. I, mean, I, I think that in many ways it's almost an entirely new game from Supreme Commander.
2: Fair enough, yeah, that, I mean, you that's, know call, that's totally fair uh,
1: calling it I mean it's clearly a sequel, and it's the big similarities are mining a lot of the same stuff, and you have robots smacking into each other, uh, but I like the fact that you do get experimentals relatively early I mean not there are there are different levels of them, but you get to see some cool stuff, so you're not just piddling around with tiny little robots. I also like that you know the tier one and tier two units, you know through research and other upgrades were in fact relatively useful. You weren't all of a sudden completely outclassed when the enemy rolls out a second tier of units and you still have an army of one tiers. So you don't have that complete push back and forth uh, that you would get in total annihilation. That would and sub, the first subcom that would sometimes lead sometimes lead to really, really long games. Now some people really, yeah, so some people yeah. really like, you know, long death matches um, that just go on for hours and hours, and I I like those, too, from time to time. But I'm sitting down to just play an RTS. One of the beauties of the RTS as a genre is that it's something you can get a strategic ex, strategic experience, you're building an economy, building armies, thinking about where to attack, and resolve it in 35, 45 minutes. I mean, that's kind of... And you could do that really well in Subcom, too. And I, I like the way the research was was worked in. Yeah, it felt a bit added on, but it didn't, but it was added on in a way that did make, you know, did let you get to the cool stuff pretty quickly and did make the early tier units quite useful and helpful. And it was a gorgeous game. I mean, let's underestimate just how beautiful uh, Supreme Commander 2 is, just from a, just the, the art perspective. Uh, it was, at the time, I think one of the prettiest and remains one of the prettiest 30s's ever made. Um, it doesn't have... It's not as brown as Supreme Commander 1, which I think is a pretty important thing.
0: Now, now, now Chris, I mean, I mean you, you must have, you know, you heard it from both sides, and, you know, they're, they're, they're both your games. You know, do, do you sort of... When you, when you call Supreme Commander 2, like, a bit of a mistake, is that, like, based on sort of the, the popular vote of your fans, or is that, you know, kind of a conclusion you reach to?
3: That's a damn good question. You know, um, it, it's it's like I was playing with the recipe with my favorite, you know, uh, soup, you know, if I was a chef and in a, in a restaurant, you know, you could do that and you could serve it. And by the end of the night, if all the bowls came back half eaten, you'd say, well, I better go back and, and rethink this and try something else. But the trouble is when these games take two or three years to make and you alienate and piss off people, you, you, you know, you, you only have to do that one time in your career to realize that you can't play mad scientist with the formula like that or chef, you know, you, 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 you but I had no experience. I, I, I had no, there was no precedent for me. Everything I did was pretty successful. You know, I mean, modestly successful uh not to overstate it you know dungeon siege had there was nothing to compare it against so people played it and took it for what it was again it sold a million copies which wasn't wasn't grant wasn't earth shattering but hey it was a million a million copies and allowed us to do ds2 um i uh you know the whole the whole uh the whole process is 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 a learning experience so when you ask that i go geez you know i mean if I knew what people were going to say and I had a feedback loop, we could experiment and play and probably focus in on the things that were better and take back the things that weren't as good. But Subcom 1 and then Forged Alliance were so hardcore to so many people, it felt like there was a lot of pushback from, from all the people that loved RTS that said we can't get into that game. And it was like, what can we do to get them in? So we sat down and we said, you know, the Experimentals is the is the equivalent of the, um, uh, you know, of the, of the, um, oh gosh, oh, the, oh, I forget even what I called them in TA. Did it even have a name for
0: them in TA? Um, the, just the mega units. The- I, I consider them a successor to Krogoff, yeah.
3: Yeah, the successor to Krogoff. I actually came up with that name, the Experimentals, because they were so um, – because it was the idea that in, in I, and I use World War II as a big inspiration. So, as a quick digression, the secret weapons programs and stuff yeah. like that, you know, the nuke uh, pro, uh, 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 research programs and stuff, you know, where, where it was all like, how much money do you invest in right. that? How much money do you take from making the basic guns and tanks and you put away where it's not going to effectively do anything until there's a breakthrough? So, it's really risky. And I love the idea that it was an experimental. Um, but uh, uh, the, the the thing is, is that what we've learned in Supcom 2, if we applied it to Supcom 3, <clears throat> I believe we'd get the best of both worlds. And I don't believe we would just retreat and go all the way back to Supcom 1 and say, let's start completely over again. There are elements in Supcom 2 that really worked. Uh, I'm glad you guys picked up on the, on the art. I mean, it was gorgeous. <clears throat> I was so impressed. That art, by the way, Came out of the Demigod game. I mean, the fact that what we did in Demigod, we call it the static mesh technology, where we are able to push all that geometry down to the video card, and that gave us frame rates. Because when you have to tessellate dynamically, meaning you have to play game, you have to push that 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 terrain uh, tessellation, the the geometry that down into the card per frame, you fill your bus. With, uh, with so much data, you, you, you choke your machine and you don't get the frame rate. So if you notice that the, the, the Supcom 1 and Fortune Alliance frame rates were dismal compared to the uh, frame rates on Supcom 2. And we were doing way more with, there was way more visual data, way more visual density there. So we did a lot of great things. Now, the Flowfield Pathfinder played a big role in this. The Flowfield Pathfinder is a world-class, state-of-the-art, top drawer, best-of-breed pathfinding system. What's the catch? Takes up a lot more memory. So now your map sizes have got to be smaller. And the map sizes, I think, did more to hurt Supcom2 than uh, the economy system. People lost that loving feeling. They 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 felt that I know (laughs) should I sing that? They um, they they that because they weren't epic. It wasn't epic enough, but then it was like, yeah, but the pathfinding sucked on the double A star hierarchical graph stuff sucked. So we were kind of experimenting. Now, of course, today, if we did Supcom 3, I'm sorry if I'm blowing out the levels here. Uh, I get so worked up talking about this stuff. Uh, Today, we've got freaking 16 gigs of RAM. So now we can do flow field pathfinding. We can do epic maps. We can tweak the uh, tweak on the on the on the UI and make sure that we've got all the things right. And then you get this even better concept, which is open betas and things where you can get the right. game out there and collect feedback and back off from a design that's that's not right and turn the knobs and get it perfect with the fans. And so you know what today is, uh, you know you would you would you would really not make a lot of the mistakes. Um, that were made in the past. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, like, if if you just made Supreme Commander maybe a couple years later, Supreme Commander 2, just a couple years later, you think you might have found sort of the best of both worlds.
3: Well, I, I almost needed to make Supreme... We needed to make Supreme Commander 2 to to understand the danger. It's like a child mm-hmm. who, who, who doesn't know what fire is. You know, that's the point <laughs> that I was trying to make earlier. If you've never, ever hurt yourself, ever, you're just going to walk into a... a you know, the spinning blades of a, of a, you know, whatever you just, you, you, you have to understand the dangers. And we just got schooled on making decisions kind of in a vacuum. I mean, shit, if we had just gone up on a forum and started talking about the design of the game and started to get some early feedback, um, we caught, we probably could have avoided 70, 80% of the mistakes.
0: So I wanted to circle back to something you mentioned, Troy, about sort of the, the epic uh, and, you know, nigh-endless uh, games of Subcom and Total Annihilation you can play. I can vividly remember my parents, um, like, when I when I would be playing on, uh, you know, dial-up modem with my friend across town. We were both total, like, total TA junkies. Uh, and I think we must have played the uh, River Confluence map, like, uh, more than any other, like, 900 times. But, you know when i the, my parents would get so pissed off cuz i'd be playing it on the dial-up on the dial-up uh and so like you know i'd just lock out the phone line you know for you know entire days yeah. uh pretty much but one one reason for that i think is sort of another little like you know trademark of your rts's uh chris seems to be like First of all, I've never really figured out if, if any of them are, are well and truly balanced because there's so many plates spinning in the air. But the other thing is that you like you give defensive technologies uh, their due. Like if you want to create the Maginot Line in. Uh, total annihilation or supreme commander like you can do it and that means that you know it's not like it's you know an all-in rush is going to end the game like that all-in rush is going to run into you know dragon's teeth walls laser towers long-range artillery um i've had games just turn into uh you know big bertha death matches almost uh until someone could break the stalemate uh so uh, you know i'm kind of curious like you was balance between offense and defense uh, and unit balance a, a huge priority for you and wh- you know why did you sort of um, go into defensive tech so much when most of the RTS games I think sort of um, hobble defenders.
1: Well, can, can I add on to that? Yeah, Just go for it. I mean, one of the one of the amazing things with Total Annihilation and the game is because of the power of defense and these are defenses that you could you could build them up you know, even while you were being attacked and they could actually fight off. An assault, you you actually be okay, but one of the what it did do is it forced the attacker in many ways to okay now I've got to go by sea or I've got to go by air I've got to find new ways around the defense the defenses didn't just force you because of the wide range of units. Um, it wasn't just, okay, I've got to keep churning out more robot human wave attacks and mow things down, because the, cause, the the time involved in just building up all these troops being cut through, you need to have an efficient way to get around the defenses. So it forced combined arms in a way that very few RTS did at the time or have since.
0: Well, and also just... You know, to add on to that, the one other thing that would happen is, you know, the wreckage from a failed attack yes. would actually become a tactical obstacle. I, I would see a second yep. wave basically get caught on the dead bodies of the previous wave oh, God, and yes. just get cut to shit. And it was amazing. It was like my favorite thing.
3: Yeah. <laughs> You know, you're bringing back some great memories when I, uh, I said, we've got to leave the wreckage on the field. And of course, people were like, oh, God, that's going to kill the rendering. And I said, no, it's not, because it's cheaper to render wreckage than it is a moving active unit. And when, there's, when there, a moving unit cannot get onto the screen because of all the wreckage, our performance actually goes the other way and improves with wreckage. That was like the eureka moment for wreckage. And, and thank you for bringing that back.
0: So, but I guess, you know, to, to, to get to our question is, you know, you, your, your RTS games... Uh, are sort of like I, I think the Turtler's dream almost like you know you can defend uh, really effectively in those you can build there, you give a ton of like sophisticated defense technologies uh, to the player in all your games uh, and that seems, that seems like another way in which you really you really buck a lot of RTS trends and I just kind of wanted you to talk through um, you know why, why you love you know building uh, allowing players to build these, these, these huge ornate defensive works I think it 's just in my
3: in my experiences growing up, you know everything um that that is play you know when you play with your friends it, you build a fort um in the snow, even you you guys if you were lucky enough to be in a region of the world where you get these healthy snowfalls and you go out there and you spend the entire afternoon building a fort only to 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 really find, discover that the fun was in building the fort, not the ensuing snowball fight, which seemed to be quite useless. Um, but the idea being that you know building a castle, building a fortress, building something that you say to the world, um, come take me if you want me, you know, Al Pacino, you know at Scarface, yeah. come get me. you know um, it was the it's the defensive guy that sort of holds the high the moral high ground. You know, who says, you know, you're the you're the you're the bastard who's trying to take me down. Come come get me. Um, And of course, because of this, we needed nukes. okay? and then, of course, we needed anti nukes. And then, of course, we needed an option in the front end that said you can disable (laughs) nukes and anti nukes. It's like it's like chasing a it's like chasing a thread, you know, trying to make the figure out how to make the game balance. Now, you touched on something else. Land, sea and air. This is really important. And it meant that the Turtler had multiple things that they had to defend against. And uh, if they were on the water's edge, a battleship would just rip them to shreds. And I love the battleships. I love the battleships in real life.
0: Uh, The Millennium is just one of my favorite RTS units of all time. (laughs) <laughs> you 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 should have seen me
3: when I realized in the office and these moments started happening more and more frequently that we could have three sets of guns on the battleship just like the real battleships and they would all turn pivot and rot- you know and all independently fire and you know, and all be their own thinking sort of gun. They weren't all they weren't all slave to one axis of rotation. Um, I, I study World War II uh, extensively, and the weapon systems of even modern tanks like the M1A1, M1 Abrams, and yeah. and how the turret can track the computer tracking system inside of an Abrams tank can track moving objects, and it can it can get around off. Uh, while traveling, because of the compensator on the barrel, and it can it can hit moving targets while moving. And you go, this is this is this is ta- this is okay. Side note: War is terrible. Wars hurt people badly. Terrible, terrible, terrible. But all
0: that said, there's some amazing machinery
3: holy cow is it fun to play a video game where we simulate this stuff and, and 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 so of course I was I was like this has to go in the game so back to ships ships back to defense back to uh, the fact that you had to have the uh, the guardian you know the arm gun that would right. would just protect you and pound the shit out of anything that came up your doorstep and uh, this all these pieces had to fit together now to answer your very last question how the hell did we balance it? Um, Jake, who, who, McMahon, who did the balancing on it, ran spreadsheet after spreadsheet and he got, he simulated battles. And in the, uh, the best he could do when the game launched was a 70% uh, 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 approximation of the game. Holes were discovered, units of the week were added, frantic hair on fire moves to plug whole, gaping holes. I mean, there was, there's nothing elegant about the, the next six months after
0: the, that game released. Oh, man, I vividly remember the unit of the week. I don't think anybody had done that either before. The uh, we the unit would come out. I remember when the toaster came out, revolutionized Defensive uh, Warfare and TA. Uh, yeah, and I remember we we we'd crowd around the dude who had the good internet connection and get the uh, patch <laughs> from him, uh, you know, so we could patch our, uh, patch our own copies
3: yeah this is all reminding me uh, how many things we innovated on you know like just the radar alone when I wrote the code for the radar I thought hell I'm gonna I'm gonna render weapon fire on the radar I want to show where there's activity so other RTS games would only show unit positions but I thought it's really an important piece of data when you look at the radar that you not just see, Unit positions, you see unit activity, and why not render the fire? And that became an instrumental part of your data gathering to make strategic decisions.
0: And, and believe me, like, I, I, oh, this is so frustrating because I could, I could seriously go for like three hours talking about this <laughs> series of games. And honestly, we need to get you back here too. I'm
1: sure we, we'll, I'm sure we we'll could find a reason, a theme that will fit well. Yeah, It's, it's not going to be a problem.
0: Yeah, a theme about you know RTS base building and Supreme Commander. That's a theme episode, right? <laughs> Uh, but you know, I, I know we're all busy. I know this is a particularly busy time for you, for you as well, Chris. And, you know, so I want to talk about sort of, you know, w- what's going on right now with uh, gas powered, you know, I, I, it's been a harrowing, uh, couple weeks. Uh, you launched Kickstarter, uh, there were major layoffs at your company. Uh, you announced, uh, that you're working on Wildman. and, you know, I guess, you know, for a lot of us who've, you know, followed your career now for, uh, you know, it, certainly since Total Annihilation, so that is what fifteen years now, sixteen, um, like 15, well, 15 I mean, going on. 16. I'm one of
1: the people who, who played hardball too in, in university forever. <laughs>
0: so, right. So I guess you know we're we're just looking, you know, looking to hear about what you're up to now and what's next.
3: Well, it's it's interesting because Wild Man is just me continuing what I do. Um, uh, I, I saw, I you know, I've been seeing what's going on in, in PC gaming. Uh, there's a stagnation of epic proportions um, in in busting out into new and exciting areas uh, at the scale of game that I like to make I mean on the on the low end on the indie scene and you know and in, in so many other areas gaming has gone wild but you know it's it's in places where the production value is low enough so they can make these games for you know so, uh, you know hundreds of thousands of dollars. But then you shift to the other end of the scale, and you go to like the new Sim City that's coming out of EA. I mean, this game is, I mean, shit. You know, I mean, it's going to rival the biggest games ever made. It's just huge, and it's, uh, and then you know, the big MMOs do are doing this. But where in the where in that mid to low end, you know, range that I made games um, uh, between a million and 10 million, uh, frankly, uh, where are the games? And it's 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 tough. Uh, so I, you know, I. I I can't get, I can't, tri- it's not trivial to sign games in there. So, you know, Kickstarter, uh, I thought people would would, would uh, recognize that I was doing what I do. I may come up with a crazy new idea, uh, an idea that, you know, initially th- does not make sense because if it's really truly original and new, it kind of by definition can't make a lot of sense. Um, uh, you know, I'm sure if Marcus Pearson had uh, 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 gone on Kickstarter with Minecraft, he would have had a struggle because folks would just have said you know we don't get it this is this is the problem it's the catch 22 of trying to do something new and it's the same catch at a publisher level as it is at the consumer level that and it's why we see so much derivative games and it's also why we we we've used the word evolution rather than revolution because revolution is hard you know whether it's your whether it's your, your political system that you're trying to revolutionize or your game, uh, revolutions take uh, – uh, take, you have to have bigger balls, frankly, because you're taking huge risks and you have to bet bigger and uh, the, this is my challenge. So, Wildman is supposed to be something fresh and new and different, yet anchor itself in stuff that people understand. They understand Action RPG. They understand RTS. And so, by bringing them together, we can do something really fresh and exciting. And the risk is that we work really hard on something, and at the end, it might suck because, you know, there's no guarantees. However, I will say however, because... I've been making games now, professionally, for 25 years, and I've had my own company for 15 years, and I've made RTS games, and I've made action RPG games, and I've made... Our company, I did not design Demigod, but our company and I played and was involved in the development process did Demigod. So we understand the MOBA part of, of, of the equation. So if if you're going to send someone into battle to accomplish the mission, I felt like Gas Powered Games and Wild Man and my 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 design leadership would be the right answer, and people would get behind me on that. And that has been most true of the 6,000-odd people that have pledged, but that is not the same out turnout that we've seen in the other games that are, are nostalgic, frankly, that are going to be remakes of old games that people understand, and they can practically see the design of the game or the, the game in their head only because if, it, if somebody puts a 2 behind it or, or, or it's a sequel, they sort of already know what it is. So this is a great mistake on my part. I've underestimated uh, that people would believe in me, uh, that they would put place faith somewhat. You could call it blind faith, but I don't think it's quite blind faith I was looking for. And, um, my, you know, I would be lying to you guys if I said my feelings haven't been hurt to the point where my ego um, has been crushed to uh, to a P. Um, and I, I'm in this sort of like... a this sort of bare all mode where I just tell people the facts and I tell them where I'm at and they can judge me. And I will, you know, I will be sent, you know, I will be sent away into the mountains to live out my days after this, if that's what the world uh, uh, wants to do with me now. But uh, I put, I put it all out there and I, uh, and I'm, I'm a little sad that the response has been uh, so, 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 uh, I mean, we're talking about an order of magnitude, less interest in this game than the other nostalgic remakes and uh i just have to accept it that's the way the world works and i have to go back to the drawing board if this fails and come up with a game that's frankly uh you know a a
0: remake of a previous game period you know to to that point I, i think it's interesting because you know I, to an extent, I guess we're also guilty here, right? Because you know, we we invite you on the show, you know, but it's like we want to talk about this specific series of games you made. Uh, you know, you know, like you're you like met, a lot of us played your other games and such, but like, you know, it's like you know, for me personally, it's like, oh yeah, he's the guy who made Total Annihilation, Supreme Commander, and those other games. <laughs> and, and do you feel that sort of, uh, you know? been an issue with with your kickstarter maybe you could speak to this a little bit julian as, as well you know it, it has been a little bit of an issue with your kickstarter because i think like when when like chris roberts you know pops up on kickstarter and he's like man weren't space games great let's let's build it let's build a dog fighter you know just like we had you know 10 15 years ago wouldn't that be great again and everyone's like hell yeah we want that you show up, but now it's a new idea. You know, it's maybe not what we immediately associate with, with with you. You're saying, "All right, I've done all this, but I'm not gonna like I'm doing. I'm working on something that's very different from that other stuff we've, you know, that I've made for you and you've loved. And bear with me for that." Yeah,
3: yeah. Well, that's the that's the mistake. I mean, no, nobody that I was tracking on Kickstarter had gone out with an original idea to the to the extent of you know, I mean, Peter Molyneux, who's one of my favorite designers of all time, is effectively remaking Populous. So even he didn't make the mistake. Um, he was smart enough to know better. And I guess I, that's kind of my fatal flaw as an individual, let alone as a CEO of a company or a designer, is that um, I'm not that bright when it comes to this kind of thing. I, I figure I place a lot of faith and trust in the world. But, but really, what's the harm? In that, I mean, at the end of the day, right? I mean, I'm, I'm, it's not like I'm, this is, this is not, uh, you know, I'm not waiting for an art, uh, sorry, I'm not waiting for a heart transplant, you know, where I, I, you know, I made a plea to people to, to, to save my life. I mean, this is a video game. Uh, and if folks don't like this game concept, then that's okay. Um, and it's, it's, it's all good. I mean, how can I complain? I've had the most amazing career Uh, that anyone could have asked for uh, this last 25 years. I have just been having the time of my life, even when things got down and crappy... I I was still. If you stepped back and looked at the overall, like you're if you're an investor on the stock market, right, and you're up and you have some immediate terrible losses, but you say, well, the whole portfolio is doing well, kind of thing, right? You have to look at it that way. So the wild man incident, you know, uh, is is has been has been has been awful. I mean, on so many levels. Um, but it's it's if you if you if you average it back into my career if this is making sense it's it's really something that i should take in stride and just move on
0: you know, for for those of our listeners who who you know are are maybe on the fence about Wildman, uh, you know, but also many of us are you know huge supporters uh, uh, of your work have have really enjoyed it over the years. You know, I guess there's there, there's really kind of two questions uh, going forward that you know might be worth you know talking about right now, and you know the first is um, at the moment I assume you're he- you're forging ahead with the with with the Kickstarter, and I you know I guess. You know, for for those of us who you know have you know really love the the supreme commander and total annihilation, vein vein of games. um, You know, you know what sort of you know if you were to tailor the pitch a little bit for, for us, you know what's what's really going to what are we really going to dig about Wildman? And I guess the other question then is you know if, you know, if this, if this Kickstarter doesn't succeed, is this the end of, uh, of your career as a game designer, or at least a game designer of, of the type of stuff we, we, we've seen before, uh, that you'd have to go in a much smaller, you know, indie direction? Like, is this, is this do or die time for, you know, people who've enjoyed your work over the years?
3: Um, I think in many ways it, is well at least i thought it was but i will tell you that my phone has been ringing so to speak and there's been people approaching me um and saying you know let's partner on wild man to get it out to territories of the world to to you know effectively publishers are calling asking if there's some way they can get they can get involved in it and uh that has brought new hope to the idea that even if the kickstarter were to fail that there's a way to get Wild Man uh, made. Um, but of course, I've had a lot of experience working and talking to publishers, and we had uh, uh, five publishers talking to us in the fall last year when work started to disappear, projects were canceled, and so forth, and those talks all across the board amounted to do nothing. So uh, I'm, no, I'm not naive about how hard it is to get a conversation from an excited first email or phone call to get a pen to paper to get money into your bank so you can make payroll uh, this is the this is the very tough side of it so i'd say at this point to answer your question anything is possible but right now the company is on its its last gasp or push um we have enough cash with the layoffs now because of course when you make a layoff it's like uh, canceling a unit, you know. In the production, you know, the resources shift to the remaining folks, uh, and that allows us to extend the runway. And it did another important thing, though, of course, which I've talked to death about, which is it allowed us to pay the folks who did leave uh, completely, uh, pay them off the money that they they did, they they are uh, owed.
0: Which is a hugely classy thing uh, by these sometimes brutal standards of uh, game development, of game layoffs. Yeah. Well,
3: if You know, honestly, we could do it. We can start a whole new broadcast, a whole new podcast, starting now. Because you know, when you looked at what happened to other places, I mean, there's been a few examples, and I don't want to even mention who they are, but I think we all we all know who they are. The the employees are all gathered into a room, and told, "Today's your last day. Thanks very much. Have a nice have a nice day." Or uh, they go to cash their checks, or they go to look at their check their online statement, and then and there's no money, and then they find out through a friend who calls them and says, "You know, uh, the company's broke." Um, we, we saw all of this and I said, well, that will never happen at GPG. Um, I think there was a little bit of shock. If there was any shock at all at gas powered games, that's when I sat people in the office on that Friday uh, morning. And I said, you guys know that this Kickstarter is not doing well. It's off by an order of magnitude from comparable games. Um, we're not quitters, but we have to, you know, I mean, you know, you know, just there's there's a fine line between quitting and doing the right. and continuing to try to do what feels like extraordinarily bad odds when you have to step away from the game and you in the company and you have to look towards your families, your children who who need to be fed. I mean, let's. This to me is so clear and obvious, but I really, really appreciate saying that, Rob. That it was—it's classy. I think it's just prag. I think it's—it could be. It very much could be considered classy, but I think it's very pragmatic and it's very real. Uh, I have four children uh, myself, and I know that that they are my first priority. Just quickly, um, uh, the company has a fighting chance. I think if the campaign. doesn't go through with the response I've received off on the side. But if those conversations and discussions fizzle out, which there's a very good chance they will, I will shut the company down and I will basically retreat, uh, to the next defensive position, which is going to be, uh, starting a much, much smaller company and running it out of my basement. I mean, what choices do I have? Um, and, uh, maybe the things that I do at that level because I won't be surrounded quite honestly with the talent, the fabulous talent that I've had at my side this last fifteen years, that that stuff I do won't be successful and people won't care or notice it. So I have to be prepared for that. So that's all part of this package of, of career management and, and the run I've had and where it's delivered me and, and 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 I just have to I just have to accept it. Um and believe me, um, if you've ever wondered what it was like to be a Hollywood movie star and be at the top of your game and then have to do insurance commercials and watch that happen in front of your eyes the last twenty years, well, I'm experiencing a little. I'm going into that territory right now. So, so I've got, I've got to come down, come down. I've got to step down emotionally about how I feel about myself and what my contributions are going to be moving forward. And this takes a. Uh, This takes some real doing uh, mentally without going into depression uh, because you can totally, totally see it. Now, you guys probably know this about me. I'm not the kind of guy to be depressed. I have this buoyancy to me, which is just unexplainable. So don't worry about that. Just know that I'm now appreciate what it takes to go from being in the spotlight to being in every magazine seemingly that is printed. Uh, I could, you know, talk about what I, what I ate for breakfast back after the total annihilation days. <laughs> and it seemed to be interesting to someone, but now it's not anymore. And, uh, that, that is, that's really quite an experience. I, I, I don't know that I would wish it on anyone, but, but, but bye. If it's in your fate, take it, go with it.
0: So, uh, you know, I'm not quite ready to read words over your grave just yet. Uh, so I mean I'm 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 still you know still still hopeful for for your for your Kickstarter st- and your and your ongoing success. You know to, to my to my first question, I mean, you know, we haven't we haven't talked much about Wildman, and I know we're I know we're running short on time. And uh, Julian, I'm sorry if we're keeping you from like family obligations. No, 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 it's all right. You know, but like you know, we we talked about your your RTS career today and all these you know all these previous games of yours that that we've loved. Uh, but you know, I, I think for for a lot of us, maybe there's a hard time connecting that to Wildman. You know, it's it's hard for us, you know, who are Chris Taylor supporters, maybe to to figure out, uh, you know, what what we're going to get out of Wildman. You know, what's going what's going to appeal to us, uh, you know. Some of us are. Some of us have become MOBA fans. Some, you know, adamantly resist MOBA. Be that as it may, you know, what's you know, speaking like directly now to people who know your work in strategy, uh, you know, tell us a little bit about Wild Man and uh, you know, what what excites you about it and what you think we'll like.
3: Well, the thing I th- I thought was a great foundation was the action RPG because you know taking a character and building them up and going out there and doing it in a fresh IP. So right off the bat, people are playing something new and different. Uh, and what we did was, you know, what I thought would be really fun is do a technology progression, which has never been done in an action RPG, which is where you don't just find an item. OK, that's a sword that somebody made somewhere that knows how to make swords. And that this guy was carrying it and I he drops it now because I've taken him out and I got his sword. Oh, he's got a cool helmet. Oh, he's got gold. Great, I'm going to go back to town. I'm going to go to the store and I'm going to buy something else that's been made. The notion of technology really isn't there. Technology is frozen for all intents and purposes. Nothing new is invented while you're playing an action RPG game. I, I hope that uh, that generalization is true because, of course, I haven't played every action RPG game ever made. But I think it's I think it's relatively safe to say you never see in an action RPG new technology available. Right, like that, you would see in, in frankly, in RTS or, or a lot of games, uh, a lot of sort of sci-fi games and what have you. So I thought that would be a the foundation, be a great time. Now add to that this idea that you're you're just this wild man that is the first Homo sapien, so your fir- your first form of man, and he's going out into the world. He leaves his uh, his his uh, animal skin tent, and he picks a bone up, you know, and he clubs some guys over the head that walked into his base. And they drop some stuff, and he goes, "Oh, this is really cool!" And how he's got this new technology that he can apply uh, to his armies uh, horizontally, and the idea that the technology progression, because we don't we don't want to go deep into R and D, we do it by walking through time. The technology it's a time walking technology approach, Uh, if you can imagine, right? So you then begin 200,000 years ago, and as you progress through the world, it's like technology is being invented, but it's always found in the hands of your defeated enemy. And this is is like a a twist in the way that we kind of think about it. Because let's face it, as we're sitting on this podcast right now, there's someone on the other side of the world someplace working in a lab, and they're going to have a technology breakthrough. Right. So it's happening even today with with. Well, of course, it's happening today more than ever, frankly, but in the past by compressing 200,000 years, we can enjoy we can have a ton of fun with this technology game. Now, when I get into the idea of an expanding empire, I push up against folks that are doing the same thing I'm doing. And these folks are, of course, AI players. It's single player. And they have the they're 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 there. And I come into their world. And I've got to apply the technology that I found to my army in order to go into and take them down on this battlefield. And I get to choose which technologies I deploy uh, as a part of my war zone gameplay. And my hero, who's been finding cool items and things like that maybe some armor, maybe a weapon gets to lead the charge. Braveheart, you know, Conan gets out there and leads and does the devastating amount of damage and the game remains in the RTS element a hero-centric game just like the commander did in Total Annihilation he was the hero and the um in and, and that that's to me uh that was so important frankly to Total Annihilation that the player was on the battlefield so when you were uh, sorry
0: yeah, I was, I was just going to say, actually, this is. This does address something that I, you know, always sort of, uh, you know, maybe a, a little bit of a letdown with uh, with the Supreme Commander Total Annihilation series is eventually you had that phase, and it always happened a little too soon for my liking, where you had to go into protect the hero mode, right? Like, your commander would basically be sent off to a, you know, uh, parking lot by himself, uh, you know, surrounded by defenses so he couldn't get killed and, you know, uh, blow your base to shit or end the game. Yeah. Uh, and so it was always like you had the most badass unit in the world but he was a glass cannon, right? Uh and so it's I I like the inversion here where basically now you're leading from the front and you know the the badass hero unit uh you know is you know still the incarnation of you but now more active.
3: Exactly. And we tried to fix that in Supreme Commander 1 and 2. We tried to give them the commander uh so much more capability. He could be an offensive unit um And uh but you know ultimately he still had too much, you know, too he was he's too key to put to to overextend. Um so you're exactly right. Now in Wildman, of course, if your if your Wildman dies, he respawns. So we took a lot of cues out of uh the MOBA games. The MOBA, the whole MOBA thing, you cannot discount it even if you do not like MOBA and you don't like playing MOBA. Remember, MOBA is played online with a whole bunch of ferociously competent players, so they kick your ass. But the fact is is MOBA is actually a ton of fun as a single-player game, but, but not all by itself. Like if you just fired up the computer and said, I'm going to play MOBA single-player. But when you wrap action RPG around that and you reintroduce real-time strategy decision-makings, in other words, strategy, not just tactics, all of a sudden there's this magic where you're out there exploring, you're looking for tech, oh my God, you're in a cave, you kill some spiders, a bear, some wild cat, whatever it is, and they're guarding something that's amazing that somebody's put in there, Uh, and now you're thinking to yourself, God, when I get back on the battlefield, on the war zone, in the war zone, I'm going to use this tech, and I'm going to kick some ass with it, but I'm not going to be the only guy who's got this crossbow, every one of my archers are going to have crossbows and i'm going to implement i'm going to do some serious damage with it so so your it's it's the r&d lab part of of the of the of the of, the, of, a, of a war
0: but now it's but now it's it's a, its own adventure it's its own adventure
3: so when i go out and exploring there's a payoff if i want to go into the next war zone without right. doing my homework in quotes then i'm not going to do as well as then if i explore. So i get this really cool yin yang thing where it's like exploration It's kind of like r and d research. When i fight a war, i'm going to pick something up there. I'm anxious to take the toys that i've that i call them toys, you know, the goodies and things that i've discovered. I'm anxious to apply that, you know, and and you know, nations who have really powerful weapons of war in real life, they bristle for war, right? They want a comb, they want to a tangle. I think we know who i'm talking about right now. Um, they want to test the stuff out. They want to give it a shot. Now, in real life, it's terrible. But in video game, like I said earlier, it's a lot of fun to find something really devastating and say, oh, I can't wait to see what this can do. But, (laughs) you know, in a multiplayer game, right, that doesn't work because it's completely unfair. But suddenly, in a single-player game, this really shines. And and the the thing we know, okay, is we know that single-player, 90% of people who play PC games love single player because it's a chance to spend time alone with the game, learn the UI, learn their way, get their way around before some guy tells them they're a fucking noob and they should get the hell off.
2: (laughs) 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 Never happens, never happens.
3: (laughs) Never happens, right, happens. It's sad, right? So people are turned away. 50 million people, apparently, according to numbers, have downloaded League of Legends. What's the MAU? Five million. Ten percent of the people can stand the heat. Now, these numbers are very, and it's just, these are the numbers I've heard. But let's just say 10 percent. We're seeing the 10 percent number time and time again. People, first and foremost, want single player. Secondly, secondly, they want to play with a friend. But they don't want to play against that friend. They don't want to club their friend. and They want to play with their friend. They want to defeat the, uh, an opponent that they can dial up. To a certain level and then bring out their wild man bring out their characters and see what they can do and then in the end what they're really doing is they're very very casually competing with their friend because when the war is over their friend has a score and they have a score it's like a golf game you know you're not right, right. hitting uh, e- uh, you're not uh, hitting uh, each other's balls out on the golf course <laughs> so to speak yeah, yeah.
0: Well, yeah. no, I, I know what you mean. That's certainly, I think, uh, when when Julian and I play, uh, you know, League of Legends together, when I mean, he takes me on another training run and tries to carry my ass through a match. Uh, there is sort of the discussion of well, how'd you do? Uh, you yeah, know, comparing scores, <laughs> uh, that sort of thing. And I think you, I think you raise a good point about MOBAs because I do feel both Dota Two and uh, League of Legends. Actually, I'm still in this journeyman phase, and I've put in a lot of time, but I just don't feel like, you know, I feel I've, there's a long road between me and being able to play, uh, you know, ranked, for instance, or you know, even play, um, you know, even even play, uh, you know, fully fully. Uh, staffed multiplayer matches uh, very often, but it, it sounds like it sounds like a really uh, you know exciting project. Um, I you know really hope that it, it, it comes through for you. Um, I also hope that maybe you know uh, coming out of this, some publisher sort of swans in and orders up another Supreme Commander or something like that. Yeah, uh, can't deny that. I uh, you know I wouldn't.
2: We'd, we'd all play it. Yeah,
0: play the shit out of it. Uh, but either way, I hope, um, I hope the Kickstarter goes well for you. And above all though, I hope you get to keep playing. I, I hope you get to keep, um, uh, making amazing games, uh, with the talented team you've assembled over the years.
3: Thanks, Rob. It I really appreciate that. I, I do too. I love, I love this. You know, I've been making games, you know, uh, professionally 25 years, but I made games for seven years before that on my TRS-80. So it's all I really know, um, which is kind of either either really awesome to say, or really sad. I don't know, but it's my life. And I think that it's, I'm I'm very confident to say that if I do, if, 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 if I, if I have to retreat from this position that I'm in right now, I will keep making games and I hope you guys will keep playing them. And I hope we can keep having, I hope we can chat, even if it's only every 20 years, I hope we can still chat about it.
0: Well, that'll do it for today's show. Um, if you're interested in the Wildman Project, you can find that uh, on Kickstarter. Uh, there will be a link to that at the bottom of the podcast and in the uh, in the forum post for this episode over at the Idle Thumbs forums at idlethumbs.net. Uh, as always, our thanks to Michael Hermes for cutting this episode together, and our thanks for Chris uh, for being so incredibly generous with his time and uh, really incredibly open, uh, you know, about. You know, things in the business. It's rare to encounter so much candor uh, from a studio head, a chieftain, uh, a boss. Uh, so I appreciate uh, your forthrightness and uh, I'm really glad we were able to spend a couple hours with you here today. All right, say goodnight, everybody.
2: night, all. Good night, everybody. Night, good
0: night. Everybody. <laughs> good night.